So here we are on the second day of our retreat. And it feels like we're really entering now into the heart of the retreat. We've gotten some of the some of the shimmies have you know shimmied out. Some of the dirt has begun to settle. And uh, here we are with maybe a few things. Uh, bub- hmm? A few things bubbling up from the bottom of the jar. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about the heart center. So we've been exploring these three centers of the body and of our experience of the body center, the sensing center that helps us begin to orient and land in the present, and then the feeling center, the heart center. And uh, tomorrow we'll explore a bit more the mind, the the head center. So this morning, Andrea gave a really wonderful instruction about some of how to work with feelings. And I'd like to build on uh, the instruction that she gave um, by talking a bit about what, what what is meant by feelings in a sort of from a perspective of Eastern psychology, from the perspective of Buddhist teaching. And if it's not already obvious, it's really important to say right out the gate that um, feelings happen. Things will bubble up. And if that's happening for you, to please know that there's nothing wrong and you're not off track. And also, if it's not happening for you, that's okay too. So this is a practice in which we're not trying to make something in particular happen. We're practicing being with whatever's here. And you've probably noticed, particularly for those of you who are here for the first time, that things keep changing. Uh, Even one sitting to the next can be quite different. So again, we're not trying to lock it into place. We're trying to be here with what is here. So one of the ways that we've talked about, or one of the ways to talk about feeling in uh, kind of a Buddhist psychological perspective is uh, this idea that we started talking about actually through the body and sensation, (coughs) which is of what's called Vedana, or the feeling tone of experience. And it's really a very simple concept But most of the time we're moving so fast in our lives that we don't have a chance to see it, to observe it, to experience it in in a clear and direct way. So the idea is this, which is that every moment of experience, and a moment of experience, I I should qualify that, every moment of conditioned experience, every moment we might say of sensory experience, So the senses in Buddhist psychology include the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, taste, touch, and the mind. The mind is considered a sense door. So every moment of experience that arises through one of these, as seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or touching or mental activity, has a valence, has a flavor, which is very, very simple. It's either pleasant or unpleasant, or what's called neither pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes described as neutral. So you may have started to notice this, that some of your experiences are pleasant and some are not. And you may have begun to notice, um, as Andrea said, uh, either yesterday or one of, the, one of the sets of instructions that we don't just stop with pleasant or unpleasant. That the basic movement goes something like this. Pleasant, 
I like it. I want it. I try to grab on. I try to get more or make it stay. And the flip side for the opposite, right? If it's unpleasant, it's the same thing, but we basically unpleasant. I don't like it. I don't want it. I try to push it away. I try to make it go away. I try to get rid of it in some form. Does that sound familiar to anyone? (laughs) This is understood as our basic human conditioning. It's if as we start to pay attention, we notice that this is what's happening moment by moment. And it's really important to understand that what we're not, we're not trying to stop that process in the, in the meditative practice. What we're trying to do is not get caught by it. What we're trying to do is not be identified with it. What we're trying to do is find a sense of freedom as this amazing display of pleasant and unpleasant phenomena is arising moment by moment. What we normally do instead is what? We run around trying to get all the good stuff and get away from all the bad stuff. Pretty much, if you think about in the, in the worlds that I run in, everybody's really, really busy. And I think that probably most of our busyness is made up of that. It doesn't look like that on the surface. It looks like, you know, I have all these appointments or clients or retreats to teach or whatever it is, you know, kids to take care of. But a lot of our activity, a lot of our movement or busyness is this trying to get and get away from. Some of you have noticed how well that strategy works. Probably, I'm going to try this again. Probably all of you have noticed how well it works because if you hadn't tried that and then you know, sort of taken it as far as you could get it as a strategy, you probably wouldn't be here. A lot of times people end up on meditation retreats when they've done their best. I tried to get as much good stuff as I could and get away from as much bad stuff as I could, and it it didn't work. So then we bring that same patterning into retreat. (laughs) So we have, as Andrea was talking about, a certain kind of reactivity to are pleasant and unpleasant. And one of the things that we can do is um, add. So we add, it's unpleasant. Not only do I react to it and try to get rid of it, but then I have a series of judgments and opinions about this shouldn't be happening. And it certainly shouldn't be happening to me, right? This is called making it worse. The same thing happens when we have something pleasant and we try to grab on, and then it goes away, and then we're distraught, and same. So we bring this, you know, we bring our ideas, we imagine, I heard this in various ways, articulated in the interviews today, consciously or unconsciously, we come to a meditation retreat, imagining that now it's going to all work out. I'm going to get to that place where it's all pleasant and all the unpleasant is going to go away. This is our normal, habitual conditioning and how we respond to things. And guess what? That's not how it works. What we have is something much, much better than that. What we have is the possibility of beginning to meet our experience with skill and with kindness. It's not about trying to get and get away from. Now, the same is true, of course, not just with pleasant and unpleasant, but with the whole symphony of emotion that arises up out of that, right? So if it's pleasant, maybe we're happy or giddy or something. And if it's unpleasant, maybe we're angry or frustrated or sad or something, right? And we can have reactions to the emotions as well, right? So suddenly I'm feeling angry And then we have, as Andre was saying, the second dart. So the anger arises, and instead of being interested in what's in the anger itself, we have, no, 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 this this should not be happening. Or 
I am angry, and we identify with it and say, right, here it is, anger again, I'm such an angry person, I'm not, it becomes me. So either way we go, by grabbing on and identifying with it, or by saying, no, 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 this shouldn't happen, both of these are called adding a second dart. This is called, I have an old Zen teacher who says, the whole of our practice can be described very, very simply. It's called not making things worse. So it's difficult. It's already difficult. And it's not only difficult, there's more. But the Buddha taught the first noble truth as dukkha, as difficulty, for a reason. And he wasn't talking about all those other people. (laughs) He was talking about us. And yet, somehow, we find ourselves surprised. Isn't it odd that we come into a meditation retreat and we think, why is it so hard? Why am I having so much difficulty? And if you're not, if you're one of the people in the room who's not having difficulty at all in the last day or so, please just let these words run right by you. It's fine. Uh, At some point, you probably, too, will have some difficulty, but it's okay if you're not right now. No points against you. So we wonder, why me? Why is this happening? There must be something wrong. This is called making things worse. So what does it mean to meet our experience with skill, with kindness? There's a wonderful old Zen story where a student comes to his teacher who's on his deathbed. It's one of my most favorite stories. And uh, he says, tell me, what is the teaching of your entire lifetime? (laughs) Poor old guy's dying, right? And the student comes and says, you know, give me the the crux of your teaching. And you could imagine, what's he going to say? This guy's been teaching 90 years or something, you know? And... uh, What is the teaching of your entire lifetime? And the teacher says, an appropriate response. An appropriate response. So what does it mean to not engage in making things worse, in adding fuel to the fire, in being reactive on top of what's already difficult, and instead to respond appropriately? So about five years ago or something, I went to see one of my old Zen teachers because I loved this story so much I actually named my company after this story. It's called Appropriate Response because I liked the story so much. It spoke right to the heart of the teaching for me. Anyway, I had been working with this story for some time and I went to see um, one of my teachers and I said, you know, what is the, what is the um, word appropriate a translation of? because it's a translation of Chinese text. And he kind of lit up when I asked the question. Probably nobody had asked that question before. (laughs) So what is the translation of the word appropriate? And he said, it's three Chinese characters. And those characters are meet, each, teach. Meet, each, teach. So what does it mean to meet each? to meet each experience as a teaching, as something that has something to say, something to reveal, something to show us, to teach us. This is how we begin to engage in our life as revelation, instead of as a series of problems to solve. (laughs) Most importantly, us. Right? Most of us were the big problem that we mostly need to solve, and then there's all those other ones. Right? So what if instead we began to explore our life from the, from, the exper- from the perspective of each moment as, can I meet each? Can I meet this breath, this moment, this person, this situation, this pain in my back, this grief that's bubbling up, this moment of contentment, whatever it is that you are meeting moment by moment, can you meet it as teaching? 
as something you can be inspired by, that you can learn from. And this is really our practice. When we meet, with, we meet our experience with skill and with kindness, it leads to insight, learning. That's what teaching is about, right? We start to have insight. We begin to cultivate wisdom and compassion. We begin to meet our experience with this blend of kindness and clarity. And this, in turn, leads us to freedom, it turns out, and peace. So how do we do this? How do we meet our experience moment by moment? And we've given quite a bit of instruction about settling into the body, about uh, beginning to open to, and how to work with thoughts and feelings and sensations and so on. And today what I'd like to point to is something that it's a little bit subtler but very important, which is one of the ways that we can begin to meet our experience with skill and kindness is by paying attention to our attitude. In other words, usually we're focused on the content of what we're aware of. A thought, a feeling, a sensation, a smell, a sound, a know, the words I'm saying, which is all fine. But you can also begin to pay attention to how you are relating to that experience. What's your attitude toward it? And building on this idea of each moment is pleasant or unpleasant, and knowing that we tend to lean into the pleasant and we tend to lean away from the unpleasant, you can begin by starting to notice your attitude from the perspective of, well, am I leaning in? Is there a little bit of grasping, of wanting, of trying to hold on to, of trying to make it stay, of trying to get more? Could be gross amount of that. Like, I don't know what. I don't know how many of you ate those, those blondies for lunch, right? But there you may have noticed, so you know. And, and does that go to hoarding, you know, 10 blondies and putting them in your secret place, you know? Um, so that would be uh, the, the feeling, that attitude of leaning in, or any of a variety of things you may have experienced in the last hours uh, that was unpleasant and that you noticed, don't want, don't want, don't want. And usually we don't hear it exactly that way. We hear it as a complaint, either about ourselves or somebody else, or maybe about, you know, the teachers or the retreat center or the weather or whatever it is. So this is the don't want, don't want, don't want side. So you can begin to notice in your own experience, am I leaning in? Am I leaning away? As the, the body is actually a great metaphor for that because sometimes it shows up that way. As you're leaning in, you actually notice you're leaning in, <laughs> right? And as you're leaning away, you notice you're leaning away. So you can notice it in your mind as attitude. You can notice it in your heart as emotion. You can notice it. Often this kind of leaning in and out is a, a shows up in the body as tension. You may just notice it as a kind of gripping, wanting, or not wanting. So there's various degrees of ways that you can begin to notice this. Uh, gross and subtle ways. And what I, I'd like to do is talk a little bit about um, <laughs> this idea of attitude and noticing our attitude through the lens of some kind of more recent modern Western science. And in particular, by looking through some of the discoveries in neuroscience and the evolution of the brain. And don't worry, I'm not going to give you a long scientific lecture, but there's a piece here that I think is really, really useful. It's often overlooked. So some of you may know that the brain, the human brain, um, is sometimes described as the triune brain, three-part brain. And those three parts are in alignment with our evolution from reptiles to mammals to human beings. It's kind of a simple version. 
So the idea is that we all have in us a reptilian brain. It's kind of our ancient history, which shows up as our brainstem. This is our survival brain. It's the part of our brain that keeps us alive. It's the part of our brain that's responsible for doing all kinds of basic bodily functions that you're really, really happy you don't have to think about, like keeping the pH in your blood normal or keeping your heart beating or keeping things like that. And that reptilian brain is, because it's wired for survival, it's kind of got that. It can be pretty reactive. (laughs) It's always scanning. It's looking for danger, which is not a bad thing if there's real danger. But the problem is that we tend to uh, imagine more danger than there is. Somebody looks at us sideways and we can have a whole reptilian brain response, especially if we're not being mindful, and think, you know, that person's out to get me and we have cortisol, cortisol levels go up and we have adrenaline rush and we have all kinds of reactivity that happens in the body. It's not all bad. I just want to be clear. The, the reptilian brain in us is actually very, very useful. And sometimes when we really are in danger, it gives us the capacity to do things that we might not ever have thought we could do. You know, the stories about like moms lifting a car off their child, you know, that there's no way that somebody could actually do that, but they do. This is because of this capacity of the reptilian brain. So we have the reptilian brain, which is the oldest brain, and then we have the high brain, which is called the neocortex. This is the part of the brain that we identify with being smart, we humans, right? It's our capacity for thinking and planning and strategizing and logical thinking and Um, things like that, language, all of that comes. It's also the center where we have what's understood to be this capacity for self-reflective awareness. We call this mindfulness. It's an amazing capacity that also comes from this uh, development in the brain. But what I want to talk about today is this centerpiece, which is called the limbic brain. Limbic brain is the brain between the human and the reptilian, which is sometimes referred to as the mammalian brain. And our mammal brain evolved because reptiles basically lay eggs and then they leave. (laughs) Whereas mammals take care of their young. So imagine in an evolutionary scheme, If you're no longer laying eggs and leaving and letting your offspring fend for themselves, but you now are gestating, attending to, caring for your young, a whole new set of wiring has to develop in the brain. And what's that wiring about? It's about connecting. It's about attuning. It's about being sensitive. It's about being receptive. It's about paying attention to, it's, this, this is the attitude we're looking for, right? We're, and then to understand that how we relate to our experience is also, it's wired in, right? It's part of our evolution, this ability to care for our experience. When we're under stress, we tend to go to the reptile brain but we don't really want to live as reptiles most of the time, right? So we can begin to become aware of this capacity in us for this sensitivity, for this tuning in, for this paying attention to. In Zen, they call it the grandmotherly mind, the grandmotherly mind. I don't know about you, but I had two grandmothers, and one is not the mind that I would want to have in meditation or anywhere else. But my other grandmother, we called her the goody grandmother because she would show up at our house and immediately go to the kitchen and start baking goodies. She was a good Jewish grandmother. And the thing about her that was so great was that I remember as a little girl, she was so interested in me. Sometimes the other adults weren't that interested. They were just found me a little bit annoying. But my grandmother, you know, 
she'd say, sweetie, and she'd pinch my cheek. So tell me what's new, you know. And it was that kind of um, caring for, attending to. Andrea was saying earlier today this piece about, you know, if we're not paying attention to our feelings, they're just going to keep sending up flares, (laughs) right? So there are these parts of us that keep sending up flares because we're not attending, we're not listening, we're not paying attention. And what's needed is not so much that we have to fix or do or change or tinker. We just have to receive. We have to be willing to be present with, to listen to, to be with our experience. There's a myth that I think uh, describes this process uh, really beautifully. And it's a myth, so I'm going to share it with you, but just to say up front that it speaks in mythic language, which is a little bit like dream language. So we're talking archetypes here, not literal. Um, But it really speaks to the power and really the healing power of this kind of limbic attunement, this kind of ability to meet our experience with this grandmotherly mind, with this clarity and wisdom, but also with this receptivity, attunement, sensitivity. So the myth is called the myth of Inanna. <laughs> Inanna is an ancient Sumerian myth, and uh, ancient Sumer is it's Persia, so it's what's now would be Iran. And uh, Inanna is described as the queen of heaven and earth. And in this poem about the story of Inanna that I want to share, the poem opens with, it says, Inanna, queen of heaven and earth, sets her ear to the great below. I think this is such a great metaphor for us as we come on retreat. Because we're kind of floating around in our world, you know, maybe in our mind, in our lives. And then we come on retreat and we're asked to drop in, to ground into the body, to the earth element, right? And to begin to listen to what's here. So what does Inanna hear as she sets her ear to the great below? She hears the cries of her sister, the queen of the underworld. Her sister's name is Ereshkigal. I always think, we should have such great names these days, right? It's great. Inanna and Ereshkigal. So her sister Ereshkigal, now again, remember, we're talking in mythic terms, right? So a sister figure in a, in a dream or myth in this way is considered a part of her, right? And the fact that she's living in the underworld suggests that maybe this is kind of a cast-off part of her, right? Or a part that's in the dark, that she hasn't been paying attention to, that's under, buried. So again, I invite you to consider for yourself as you come on retreat and you begin to listen, you may have bubble up from the bottom, from the underworld, various parts of yourself that you didn't have time to attend to in the busyness of your life. And this is a good thing. This is an archetypal story, this story of Inanna. And it's, it's our story. It's part of our journey. Often in these kind of stories of a hero's journey, the journey is out into the world to, you know, slay dragons and rescue princesses and various things. And I love this story because, this this mythic story, because it's really about going in to the interior, which is much more true of what we're up to here. So Inanna sets her ear to the great below and she hears the cries of her sister and she says, I'm going down into the underworld. And everybody says, you're completely crazy. If you go down into the underworld, you're never coming back. So she goes and visits some wise figures in her life, and they give her these two little creatures to carry with her as she goes down into the underworld. This is kind of, again, symbolically, it's her own inner wisdom that's showing up. It's these two little creatures. And down she goes. And as she goes down into the underworld, it says she passes through seven gates. And at each gate, she's stripped 
of her crown and her royal accoutrements, and she arrives in the, in the palace of her sister naked and bowed low. Some of you may feel this from time to time, right? That you're being stripped, right? Whatever identities you had out there in the world, you were a parent, you were a successful this and that, you were a failure at this and that, you, all those get taken here. And it's just you with you, right? Nobody actually knows who you are and how important you are or how, what a failure you are or whatever all that is that you carried with you. All of that is stripped. So you arrive in the realm of the underworld, in the realm of paying attention to things that may have been cast off, not attended to. And now you have to brace you for this next part of the story because basically what happens is Inanna arrives and an Ereshkigal immediately uh, strikes her dead. Now, metaphorically, right? Imagine something's going to be let go of. Something has to die. This is, this is the metaphor in a hero or heroine's journey, right? And then what happens next is really important. So um, Ereshkigal kills off her sister, strikes her dead, and then there's these two wisdom creatures, right? They're still alive. And uh, Ereshkigal, once she's done doing away with her better half, as it were, she's lying down, it says, the language says she's lying on a slab of cement with her hair cast about her, strewn about her like wild leeks. So you get the idea, it's kind of a dramatic scene. And she's wailing, and she's saying basically like, oh, my neck, and oh, my grief, oh, my bank account, you know, whatever it is for you that your mind is doing, oh, my something, right? That hamster wheel that keeps going, right? And all the feelings that come and all the difficult sensations that arise as you're here. Oh, you can fill in the blank, right? It's actually a great exercise to do. And what happens is these two little wisdom creatures, they buzz over and they hover around Ereshkigal. And she says, oh, my knees. And they go, oh, your knees. Oh, my neck. Oh, your neck. And this goes on for some time. Just you should know the some time part is important because you can't just pay a little bit of attention to your difficulty. It actually really wants to know that you mean it, that you're really there for it, that you're really going to stick around. So you, there's, there's a requirement to have some patience as you engage with various parts of yourself. And notice that these little wisdom creatures, they're not trying to take away her pain. They're not trying to fix it. They're not trying to get rid of it. What are they doing? They're just being with it, acknowledging it, just as it is. This is your job. And then what happens is this amazing thing. Again, we're thinking mythically, archetypally. All of a sudden, Ereshkigal, after this goes on for some time, sits up, and she feels much better. And she says, I feel much better. And who are you to these two little creatures? And they say, you know, uh, well, we're these two little creatures that belong to your sister who you killed. <laughs> and uh, she says, well, uh, I feel so much better that I want to gift you anything you want. You can make any request you want. It's like the genie in the bottle, right? You can have the bounty of the harvest. You can have the, f you know, the fullness of the oceans. You can have, and they say, actually, we just would like that dead body over there. That's the gift we want. And so they get her back. They get Inanna back and they go and revive her and bring her back up into the world of the great above. So this is a story of how we can go down into what's difficult and meet it. And in that meeting, there is an alchemy. There is a transformation. There is a deep kind of healing that can happen. And I don't know what that's going to look like or feel like or smell like. <coughs> I don't know how long it's going to take. But the fact that this is written down in mythic language tells us that this kind of process has been around for a really long time. Right? And if they could do it, you know, back in ancient Sumer, uh, so can we. 
because we actually have quite a bit of advanced technology now that they probably didn't like these nice cushions and stuff like that. <laughs> when I was a student uh, years ago, in a Zen student, I lived for some time in a Zen center, including a few years of living in a Zen monastery. And uh, in, the, in all of the years that I was there, we had this practice. And the practice was, and this is true in Zen centers across the globe, the chanting of something that's called the Heart Sutra. And it turns out the Heart Sutra actually isn't about the heart. It's more of, it's more like the heart of the matter, right? So it seemed appropriate to say a few words about the heart center since we're talking about the heart center, um, the heart sutra since we're talking about the heart center, and to um, share with you a kind of revelation or teaching that I had from this uh, recitation at some point. So uh, the sutra is part of a vast set of teachings on wisdom, and particularly it's the Prajnaparamita literature, or wisdom beyond wisdom. It's these rather difficult teachings on emptiness. And emptiness doesn't mean nothingness. Emptiness means no separate solid thing. So you too may have had your taste of this as you've gone through the retreat. You begin to see that your ideas of things, which tend to be in kind of blocky boxes, are not the same as your actual experience of things, which is much more fluid, right? You think that you are something, and you think that your, your anger is something, and then you actually have the direct experience, and you realize, wow, there's quite a bit more complexity here than I thought. <laughs> so this is what this sutra is pointing to. But in the sutra, it opens with the line, Avalokiteshvara. Now, Avalokiteshvara, like Inanna, is a figure, an archetypal figure that represents compassion, kindness, love. So it opens by saying, Avalokiteshvara was practicing deeply. So like all of you, Avalokiteshvara, this compassion figure, is sitting and practicing. And it's kind of an androgynous figure in different places, so it's... uh, He, she woke up. She recognized, she saw the truth of reality and was freed from all suffering. This is the opening line of the sutra. So all these years, and then then after that, it sort of describes what it was that he or she saw. So all these years, I was really interested and I wanted to know what was the wisdom that was revealed. And then one morning, I had this kind of shift to perspective and I realized all the time I'd been trying to understand what Avalokitesvara realized. And from a different perspective, what I saw was, oh, it's, it's love, it's compassion, it's kindness that is waking up. I had never seen that before. I was so interested in what the waking up was about that I didn't notice that it was, it's the heart that wakes up beautiful. So there's another story, also comes from the Zen tradition, where basically it talks about, so what is it that this awakened heart does? How does he or she behave? How does she function in the world? And uh, the, the weird, quirky Zen saying, which I will explain to you, so don't worry, is uh, they say, so how is it that the figure of Avalokiteshvara uses her hands and eyes? How does she function in the world? And the answer is, it's just like reaching behind your head to adjust your pillow in the night. Now, everybody understands that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so again, we're sort of, this is in the realm of mythic language a little bit. You have, it needs a little explaining. So... If you're asleep at night and you are maybe a little, your body's a little bit uncomfortable and your head needs adjusting, what do you do? Your hand reaches up very naturally and adjusts your pillow. 
right? You don't have to wake up and think about it. And what do I do? It's a natural response. So this is the, this is the uh, point of this story, is that this capacity to respond with this kind of kindness, this gentleness, is what happens when the heart wakes up, when our reactivity begins to soften, when our ability to meet our experience, including our most difficult experiences, gains some momentum, some capacity. As the heart opens and responds, then how we respond, this appropriate response, is natural. We don't have to think about it so much. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to try so hard. This is your birthright. This is the the wiring of the limbic brain that is allowing you to respond with clarity, with kindness to what's happening as the dirt settles in the jar, as we develop the capacity increasingly, bit by bit, as hard as it may be, as wonderful as it may be for each of you period by period of meditation as you go through the retreat and in your lives, we have this capacity. And that as we attend to ourselves in this way, as we learn to meet our experience, we begin to cultivate the capacity to naturally respond to ourselves, to other people, to the world with an appropriate response. We're able to meet a situation without even thinking about it. We just reach around and adjust the pillow. Oh, so much better. Right. There's a beautiful quote from Ajahn Sumedho who says, Love, love is wisdom's natural radiance. So as we are willing to be with our experience, as we're willing to have our uh, moment-to-moment experience be received as revelation, as insight, as teaching to us, Uh, the natural response that comes forth from that, from the wisdom we gain is love. It's our natural response. It's just what happens for us. So if that's not what's happening for you right now, please don't worry, right? But know that you are doing a practice and you're on a path that has this kind of potential that as we deepen our capacity to meet our experience with skill, with kindness, with non-reactivity, as we deepen our insight, our wisdom, and our ability to be compassionate towards our difficulties, that this is a path toward freedom and peace, that we can begin to become disentangled from our I sometimes describe it as the prison of our habits and opinions. And we can begin to find a sense of spaciousness and freedom even in the midst of tremendous difficulty. I heard many stories today in the groups about quite a bit of difficulty. And the Buddha never promised to get rid of your difficulty. (laughs) What he promised was a path and a practice that would help you find your way that would help you find this capacity to respond. So I want to uh, close with a story. This this is one of those stories that fell out of my folder and I picked it up and I was like, oh, it's perfect, you know, for today. So this is a a story about uh, a man named Jarvis Masters. Some of you may know. His story. He um, has been uh, on death row 
He's been incarcerated and on death row for over 32 years. The piece that I read was a little dated, so it may be more like 35 years by now. But he was, um, he was put in prison at age 19. And then as part of the system that he went into, he joined a gang. And it turned out that the gang that he was part of was responsible for killing a prison guard. So even though he wasn't actually involved in the killing, he, because of his affiliation with that gang, he got put into, it's called the hole, he got put into solitary confinement. So many, many years of his time in prison was spent in, well, rather difficult circumstances, right? But he was a pretty extraordinary guy, and he decided that he didn't want to let the system get him, that he wanted to find a sliver of freedom, even in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. And he had the, the good fortune of um, one of his lawyers was a Buddhist practitioner, and she ended up introducing him to a Tibetan Buddhist teacher who came and gave him refuge vows, and he converted and began to practice in prison. And as his practice began to deepen, he, you know, he had taken a vow to be of benefit to all beings, and he began writing. So there are a number of books that he's written about his experience that are quite extraordinary and inspiring. And this is um, the story I want to share is a story that he told, but um, this is told through the voice of um, Pema Chodron, who's also a Tibetan teacher. And she describes... How would I say? He, she describes his deep understanding of the truth of our interconnectedness, the truth that our limbic brains know, that understand that we are deeply wired and attuned to one another. And it also demonstrates his capacity to move past his reptilian brain, if you will, and to find an appropriate response to a situation. So here's the story. Once there was a seagull in the yard in San Quentin. That's the prison where he has uh, been all these years. Once there was a seagull out on the yard in San Quentin. It had been raining, and the seagull was paddling around in a puddle. One of the inmates picked something up in the yard, a stone or something, and was going to throw it at the bird to try to kill it. And Jarvis, involuntary, involuntarily, because he had taken this vow to try to stop harm from happening. So he took this vow and he saw his cellmate, you know, somebody who had been, who's in prison with him, pick up a stone, and he involuntarily reached over and tried to stop the guy from throwing the stone. Well, you can imagine. So the action escalated this other guy's aggression, and he started yelling at Jarvis, and he was saying, you know, who the hell do you think you are, and do you care about more about some stupid pigeon than you care about me? And he was just, you know, you could see his reptile brain lighting up, getting more and more angry. And then the story goes on, something typical happened. As often occurs in prison when two men get into an argument, everyone started coming around, circling and waiting for a fight to start. This is like, it's a little bit, <laughs> like you know how the meals are the entertainment here? I think that fights in prison are kind of the entertainment, so everybody gathers around. So they, all these guys start gathering around and circling and waiting for the fight, and you know, kind of egging each other on. And this, the guy who was going to throw the stone is still yelling, why'd you do that? What'd you do that for? How come you did that, man? And out of Jarvis's mouth came the words, I did that because that bird's got my wings. I did that because that bird's got my wings. And everything stopped. Everybody got it. The fighting stopped. There was a subtle softening in everyone's hearts. 
and everyone started laughing and jiving with Jarvis. At one level, the comment made no sense, but at a deeper level, everyone understood. So that feeling that resonates in you, even if your mind doesn't understand, I did that because that bird's got my wings. Huh? We have this opportunity to drop into a level of wisdom, a level of uh, understanding that is deeper than our minds may understand, but is very, very powerful. And um, the invitation for all of us as we sit in the next day and days is to continue to cultivate this capacity to be with what's here. Even in, as was true for Jarvis, of course, extraordinarily difficult circumstances, that we can find that place in ourself that knows how to respond appropriately. And we're not going to get there by trying to figure it out or think our way through it. We're going to get there by finding our way into our bodies, into the present moment, by allowing our hearts to open, to soften, to express whatever it is that may have been buried, you know, underground, those cast-off parts of ourselves. Can we meet all of that with an attitude of clarity, of simplicity, of kindness, of receptivity? Can we be with? And when we can't be with, when it just feels too hard, then can we be kind to that as well? There's no end to that uh, circle of our ability to uh, be with, to be kind to whatever it is that's here. So let's sit together for a few moments. <laughs> 